Okay, everyone, welcome back. This is Didactic Mind, episode 74, Risen in Glory. Very happy Easter to all of you, for he is risen. He is risen indeed. To all my Christian brothers and sisters out there, very, very warm uh, Easter greetings. Uh, very warm welcome to all of my longtime listeners from Podbean and uh, before that from SoundCloud. Very warm welcome to all of my longtime readers on the site. Uh, if you have not subscribed to my email list, please make sure you do so. That way you will never ever miss a new podcast or upload uh, or <clears throat> uh, episode of um, you know the, the great Monday Dact Browser Crash uh, series or the various other series that I run uh, on the site itself. Uh, please make sure you sign up using the link provided. And uh, make sure that you like, comment, and share, and subscribe this particular podcast. Uh, it's of great importance, particularly today, because today is, of course, Easter. The day that we as Christians mark as the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, our King, Jesus Christ, uh, <clears throat> who died uh, on the cross and is now seated in glory and power at the right hand of God and will eventually judge all of us when our time comes. And this is an, a particularly important day for all of us today because this is the second year running that we've had to acknowledge it uh, with the threat of COVID hanging over our heads, the largely overhyped threat, in all honesty, of COVID. Uh, I was at... Um, service this Easter. I mean, I spent Good Friday and today actually in a uh, Christian church. And that was the first time I've been able to do that in three years. And it was a very special and important weekend for me for that exact reason. It's been quite literally three years since I finally had the opportunity to spend Easter in a church. And for those of you who understand how churches work and how far the churches have strayed away from the word and the substance of God, going to church this Easter was probably something of a revelation and not in a good way. Uh, the church that I went to, or the church is, I actually went to two separate churches. Um, one, you know, some distance away, I took public transport. It's supposed to be a very beautiful place. And it is. It is a very, very beautiful place. And another, uh, about a 40-minute walk away, a 35-minute walk um, away, a much bigger, you know, place. And both churches were very strict about observing all these, you know, social distancing guidelines. You must wear a mask. You must not stand, you must not kneel, you must not cough or sneeze. Like, guys, I mean, it was very frustrating because this was, it was all about obeying earthly authority. It was not about obeying the word of God. It was not about keeping people safe. It was about following rules. Well, what exactly did Jesus come down and die for? One of the things he died for, or one of the reasons he was crucified, is because he called out the Pharisees and the Sadducees to their faces and said, 
you whitewashed tombs, you empty sepulchres, you brood of vipers, the, the seven woes that he brought upon the Pharisees. What did he say? You people obey the rules, but your hearts are empty. You have no clue uh, how to minister to your flock. You have no understanding of how to take care of the people who look up to you. You are hypocrites. You are liars. You are charlatans. You are thieves. That's what he called them. That's what our Lord said to them. And the purpose of this podcast you know, today is all about shedding light on the truth of the Word of God, of Jesus Christ. This is important because you have to understand that we are not commanded to follow earthly authorities beyond a certain point. We are commanded to obey the laws of the world, yes. But there is a higher law, the law of God. And that is what most churches today do not follow. Now, I want to talk about how um, evil has its plans and its machinations and how it works to fulfill those plans but fails. But that's for next week. I, uh, this week, I, I really want to focus on why we can depend upon the Bible and why we can be reasonably sure, actually very sure, in all honesty, um, that Jesus was who he said he was, which is why we celebrate this day. But to understand why he was who he said he was, you have to understand why he died and why he came back to life. And to understand that, you have to understand the extraordinary dilemma that God faced. Uh when he sent his only begotten son down to us. Part of himself, basically. And that dilemma, as I outlined, I believe, in last year's podcast, actually, uh, episode something, the other episode, 20-something, must have been, um, Victory. I actually talked about this exact phenomenon where Jesus came down to earth because only God could take upon himself the sins of the world and atone for the sins of mankind. Only God had that ability. <clears throat> because mankind's problems were so great that nothing short of God's direct intervention could fix it, could fix these problems. The issue was that if God intervened directly to remove all sin, he would also have to remove all free will. He couldn't do that. So, because he loves us too much. I mean, God loves us so much that he will not force us to come to him, to be in his presence, if we don't want to be. That's the degree to which God loves his creation. And I've got a post coming up about that um, in the next few days, I think, where I talk about how the Lord loves us to a degree that we don't really fully understand. Um, well, we can't understand it. But to understand why God did what he did, you have to look back at the Bible, not just as a book of scripture or of doctrine, because it is those things, but it's not just that. You also have to look at it as kind of a book of history. <clears throat> why did Jesus die on the cross? Because he dared to say the things to the Pharisees that no one else dared. He dared to offend people by telling them the truth. 
and he dared to do so by rooting himself in history and fact. Jesus wasn't speaking allegorically when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Now, to us, you know, reading John, I think it was, what was it, chapter 5, um, verse something like that? Uh, no, I'm wrong. It's chapter 8. Uh, chapter 5 is a bit different. Chapter 8, um, basically, John chapter 8, uh, verse 58. Now, when you see Jesus saying stuff like, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. As Nabil Qureshi said uh, in his, you know, the, the, the late, sorely missed uh, Dr. Nabil Qureshi, said in his excellent um, exposition of his conversion from Islam to Christianity, uh, seeking Allah, finding Jesus. And he talked about this exact verse. He, he talks in that, it, it's up on YouTube, you can watch it, it's like an hour and something long. Um, but he spends like the first half an hour or so talking about his experience of conversion and what convinced him to walk away from the faith of his family and his ancestors to Christianity. And it comes down to verses like this. Um, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Again, as Nabil Qureshi said, to 21st century ears, this sounds kind of weird. It's like, why are you mixing up tenses? Um, <clears throat> to first century Hebrew Jewish ears, this is blasphemy. This is outright blasphemy. Ego eimi, in, in Greek, in, in Koine Greek, I am. Um, what does that mean? Well, it goes back to Exodus chapter 3. Uh, Basically, I think it's chapter 3. Again, don't quote me on these. Uh, yeah, it is chapter 3. Um, don't quote me on the versification, but I think it's chapter 3, verse 14. Uh, I am who I am. Right? Yahweh. I am who I am. Uh, that is a direct reference to the name of God. Going back a good... 1400 years in the past. That's the reference that Jesus is making. He's saying he, he is drawing a direct parallel between himself and God. This is but one of a great many historical references in the New Testament that link back to the Old. And if you understand the structure of the Bible, it's not hard to understand why that is the case. Jesus spoke of figures and events in, in the Old Testament as if he was there, as if he'd seen them, as if they were established fact. And this is one of the greatest challenges, I think, to our Christian faith, um, is understanding why the Bible is structured the way it is, why the Bible references events in the past so frequently. Because the Bible is a book of history as much as it is a book of faith. And this is where I think a lot of us as Christians face significant challenges. Those of us who just accept um, the word of God and of Christ without looking at the apologetics behind it, 
tend to run into some fairly severe problems when our faith is challenged on an historical or scientific basis. The reality is there's no contradiction between science and the Bible. There's no contradiction between history and the Bible. And this is the only holy book that you can really make that claim. You cannot make this claim in the Quran. I mean, the moment you actually start examining the Quran at any level, and the moment you start subjecting it to historical or textual criticism, it falls apart. Most, I mean, I've gone over this repeatedly in past podcasts and in many, many uh, articles on my site. This is not intended to disparage or disrespect Muslims. The fact is that what they believe is a false gospel, and it's not difficult to prove this. Um, all you have to do is examine the evidence. Well, in the name of examining the evidence, it is worth doing the same thing to the Bible to understand why Jesus died the way he did. And I'm going to start in kind of reverse order. I'm going to do this in reverse order because it's worth looking at the later books of the Bible and working backwards to the first books of the Bible. Why is that? Because when you look at the historical basis for the Bible and you unpack it, and you try to understand whether the Bible is in fact teaching history, you realize that the Bible builds itself in a pyramid shape. Revelation is the kind of very tip of that pyramid, but it sits on top of successive levels of history and fact and evidence. Revelation is... Okay, I mean, there's a lot of debate within the Christian community as to whether Revelation has already happened or it's a prediction of the future. Look, I'm not a theologian. I don't pretend to understand this. My view, my personal view, and I could be wrong, I'm my Catholic brothers, I'm sure, would be quite keen to correct me. I, the Catholics believe that what's depicted in Revelation has already happened. Okay, fine. Maybe it has. The evangelicals believe it is a sign of portent still to come. I don't know. I, I, I just call it as I see it. My personal view, based on my reading of Revelation, is that it is um, a sign of things to come. It, it, it talks about the coming, the return of Jesus Christ, the return of the King to sit in judgment over the world. That's me. You may have a different interpretation. That's fine. You know, Read into it what you want. Um, or at least, well, no, that's, that's, that's bad advice. Read, read the text and then come to your own conclusions and back up those conclusions with what else you find in the Bible, in the book. Okay. One of the books that forms the historical basis, the most important historical basis for the authenticity of the New Testament is the book of Acts. Now, it's not coincidental that the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke are the two kind of most boring books in the New Testament. Um, that's not a, I'm not, I'm not slating St. Luke. Uh, I'm just saying these are much more dry books than certainly the Gospel of John. My personal favorite is the Gospel of John. Uh, because it is, it has the highest Christology and it depicts Jesus Christ very differently from the Synoptic Gospels. But if you look at, uh, the book of Acts in particular, you cannot help but read through the book of Acts and think that this is history. And remember, there's some truly fantastical things claimed in the book of Acts. 
there are uh, the, the story of uh, St. Paul, you know, Saul of Tarsus and his, his conversion on the road to Damascus is but one of many amazing and miraculous events that takes place in the book of Acts. Well, look at the book of Acts more carefully and you're quickly going to realize that there are so many historical events, so many historical places and peoples and locations and trade routes, cultures and so on described in the book of Acts, that we should be able to go back and look at the time that, you know, Acts was written, which was about 50, B, 50 AD, excuse me, 50 AD. And we can imagine, we can examine for ourselves whether or not Acts is accurate. Well, here's the funny thing. When you go back and look at the evidence of the time and the places that Paul and Luke visited together, and you look at the places that the other apostles visited together, they fit perfectly with the narrative in Acts. This is the narrative of a doctor, because that's who Luke was. He was a, St. Luke was a healer. Um, he was a, a medical doctor, I mean, a medicinal practitioner of the time. So he was trained to observe and infer and document with meticulous accuracy, which is exactly what he did. He recorded his journeys throughout his time spent with the apostles, wrote it all down in a very refined form of Koine Greek. Now, if you know anything about Greek, um, the first thing you're going to realize when you try to study Greek is that you don't know English. Because Greek is so strict in terms of grammar and um, rules, and yet so vague in terms of word order and spelling uh, and subject, object, you know, all that stuff. Whereas English is actually much more strict about these things, but the rules are much less well-defined. So the, the first thing you're going to learn when you, when you take on a language like Greek, which has genders and cases and tenses, is that you don't understand English very well. And I, I know this. I mean, uh, if you look at Russian, if you look at um, the complexities of the Russian language, Russian is actually an, ex an extremely complex language, but it owes a lot of its uh, structure and uh, its, its history to Greek. It really does. Uh, the Cyrillic script is... Um, has its roots in Greek letters. And that's a fact. I mean, if you look at the old glagolitic script and you look at modern-day Cyrillic uh, and you compare that with the Greek script, there are many similarities. And that's not coincidental. If Acts is a history book and if the Gospel of Luke is a history book as well, and if the Gospel of Luke ties in very closely with the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, which it does, that's why they call the Synoptic Gospels, because they kind of synchronize together. That's not, I mean, it's not the reason it's called synoptic, but they, they, they merge together. They, they blend together very well. There's an argument among scholars today, uh, biblical scholars, that uh, I don't know if this is the secular position or the theistic one. I, I really don't, I don't concern myself with such debates, but there is an argument among scholars today that actually, rather than being three separate gospels, that, uh, and instead of Matthew being the first to write his gospel, the prevailing view today is that, in fact, Mark wrote his gospel. And Mark wasn't a direct witness to um, Jesus. He was uh, a tax collector. What was that? Oh, hang on. Uh, that was Matthew who was a tax collector. 
Mark was uh, somebody who knew one of the disciples of Christ um, and kind of wrote a secondhand gospel. And then Matthew and Luke kind of took their gospels and tied in events that they knew from the time into the same narrative. So that seems to be a fairly popular view among scholars today. But if you look at the Gospel of St. Luke, again, it's not the most exciting of the three Gospels. I actually consider it the most boring. Um, I don't particularly enjoy reading through the Gospel of St. Luke. But if you read through it, you're going to find, again, a remarkable fidelity to detail and a remarkable precision involved in telling the story. There are names, there are places, there are uh, events described in the Gospel which can only really have been described by somebody who was there. And they are documented with meticulous accuracy, again, reflecting the penmanship and the authorship of a man trained to observe and to document, as a physician would be. It's not even, like, if you look at the Gospel of John, I mean, it's you could, in theory, discount a lot of the Gospel of John, until you get to a particular point in the Gospel of John in, I believe, I think I've got it right this time, John chapter 5. Let's go look it up. Uh, I'm using the English Standard Version for all this, by the way. Uh, healing at the pool on the Sabbath. John chapter 5, right at the beginning. Uh, John chapter 5, verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Interesting. Described in the present tense, which means that he's describing Jerusalem in the present tense. Which means that he's talking about Jerusalem before the sacking of the city by the Romans, which happened in the 70s AD, 70, 70, uh, 74 AD, I think it was, uh, or 73 AD, siege of Jerusalem. The entire city was destroyed. So the Gospel of John had to have been written before 70 AD. And most likely was written, I mean, we know that, that the first extant copy that we have of any fragment of the Gospel of John dates back to about somewhere between 90 and 110 AD. It's called the Rylands Papyrus, uh, P1, P110, I think it is. Uh, it's, it's a credit card sized bit of papyrus, which contains a couple of verses of the Gospel of John, just a couple, written in Greek. But that dates back to between 90 and 150 or so AD, and the consensus seems to be it's probably about 110. Now, that is a copy of a copy of a copy of, you know, dating back to the original Gospel of John. But it completely puts to the lie the notion that the Gospel of John could not have been written until, you know, 100 to 150 years after Jesus' death. The Gospel of John was written within a few decades of Christ's death. There's no longer any doubt about that. We cannot escape that fact. Which means that we are dealing with eyewitness events to a miraculous happening. No other holy book can make this claim. The life of the Buddha, uh, the Siddhartha Gautama, uh, Gautama Buddha, was written several hundred years after his death. The first extant biography we have of Alexander the Great uh, was not written until several hundred years after his death. And the first copy that we have available to us from uh, Plutarch, uh, from Plutarch's lives, did not 
come into you know wide circulation until a thousand years after Alexander's death. These are roughly the dates uh, that, that we have available to us. We just don't know if Alexander the Great or, or Aristotle or Plato or Socrates were the men that we think of today because we don't have contemporary source evidence from that time. We have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies going back, you know, uh, several hundred, if not several thousand years to these men. We don't have the source material. With the Bible, with the New Testament, we have an abundance of source material. We have so much source material that it's like we as Christians are blessed with almost an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the source material. So we don't have to worry about that. We can substantiate all of these claims or we can have them knocked down very easily. And in fact, when you do your homework, you're going to realize that the New Testament, particularly the Gospels and particularly the Book of Acts, are works of history. Then you go back to the Old Testament. And it's important to, to keep that connection because the New Testament is the completion of the Old. That's how we Christians think of it. Well, if the New Testament is the completion of the Old, then it must rest on the Old Testament as canonical fact. That is how Jesus looks at the Old Testament. He looks at Old Testament figures and he references them constantly. And he says that, you know, if you had known your father Moses, then you would listen to me. If, uh, I am, I was there, you know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. Uh, I, before Abraham was, I am. That's, these are the things he said. So he's not talking about these things in a past tense. He's not, he's not noting them as though he's a passive observer. He's saying them like they happened in his lifetime, which makes no sense if he's a mere mortal man. But it makes complete sense if he is God. Then you go back to the history books in the Bible. You look at Genesis, Exodus, um, Leviticus, not so much. Deuteronomy, not so much. Well, Deuteronomy, maybe a little bit. Uh, Judges, First, um, Second Samuel, First, Second Chronicles, First, Second Kings, uh, Ecclesiastes, Job. Well, maybe not Job, not so much. I mean, it's uh, kind of an odd book. Uh, Jonah. All of these books, which have so many historical references within them. Well, do those historical references tie out? Do we have evidence for them? I mean, for a long, long time. Uh, particularly after the, 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 the withering criticism that the, the, the Christian faith came under in the late, well, the mid to late uh, 1800s, a lot of Christians walked away from their faith because it seemed as though historical evidence and historical and archaeological findings had disproven a lot of what the Bible said. It seemed as though that was the case. But the more we dig, the more we look, the more we realize that actually the data support the biblical account. One of the most contentious parts of the Bible from a historical perspective is, of course, Exodus, the story of Exodus itself. Um, Exodus is central to the entire idea of Jewish identity. Jesus was a Jew. I mean, he talked repeatedly about uh, Jewish prophecies, and he fulfilled Jewish prophecies that dated back to the time of Moses. He talked repeatedly about fulfilling the need for uh, a, a, substitu uh, a substitutionary sacrifice, if you will. 
of substituting, you know, taking sins away from mankind through the shedding of blood. And that how, you know, the Son of Man will die and will rise again in glory, that the temple will be destroyed and will rise up again in three days, and so on and so forth. It doesn't make sense if the Exodus didn't happen the way it's described in the Bible. I mean, what does the book of Exodus say? The book of Exodus talks about how, uh, you know, following the the emigration of Jews into Egypt, uh, they fell into bondage and captivity and slavery and uh, stayed there for, I think the Exodus says, about 480 years um, and were just abominably badly treated and then suddenly left Egypt and during, you know, during the process of leaving, they engaged in what we know, know of today as the, the Passover. Um, Pesach to my, to my friends in the tribe, uh, where they slaughter a, a, a you know, a, a lamb without blemish and roast its flesh and spread its blood over the lintel and doorposts of the houses and that way the spirit of vengeance will pass over those those houses that are so painted. I'm being very uncharitable with the scriptures, I apologize, but uh, trying to just give a flavor of it here. The Passover feast is central to the entire narrative of the New Testament. The entire idea of Jesus' passion and his death on the cross comes from this Exodus story. Without the Exodus story, there is no validity to what Jesus did. It doesn't make sense. From a Jewish perspective, it'd be like, dude, you know, if Exodus didn't happen, why are you offering to kill yourself for sin? There's no connection between what you're doing and what our forefathers did. It doesn't tie out. But here's the thing. A lot of what modern archaeology and modern scholarship talks about with respect to Exodus being kind of a fairy tale hinges around the use of the word Ramesses in describing towns, the, the, the cities in which the Jews lived. The, Exodus talks about building the city of Ramesses, and Genesis talks about Ramesses. In Genesis chapter 47, you'll find it is a reference to Ramesses. Here's the problem. Ramesses, the king, most often thought of as the king of the Exodus story, Ramesses II did not exist until about 1200 BC. That's the what is known as the New Kingdom period of Egypt's history. Ramesses II was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, of all of Egypt's pharaohs. Um, he was the richest, the most powerful. He expanded the borders of the empire tremendously and uh, really you know, brought in a lot of wealth into Egypt's coffers. Um, and the problem is that if Egyptologists and archaeologists excavate Egyptian artifacts from roughly that period, the you know, 12th century BC era, they don't find anything that matches uh, the Genesis and Exodus narratives. There's nothing there that ties out with the Exodus story, which is why the modern scholarly opinion about Exodus, the mainstream secular scholarly opinion, is that it's just a fairy tale. It, didn't, it never really happened. But if you go to uh, a film, a very, very good film, called Patterns of Evidence, 
Exodus, colon, Exodus, um, which you can, you know, you can, well, you can find it if you look hard enough, uh, if you, shall we say, sail the high seas. If you do sail the high seas, make sure you get a VPN. We've you know, got a great deal for Surfshark uh, VPN, which is the best value VPN, bar none, uh, in the description box. Make sure you sign up for that if you haven't already, because it, it will save your bacon, trust me on this. Um, but make sure you get yourself a copy of this documentary, come what may. Uh, I saw it on Netflix many years ago, and then I finally found it and downloaded it. Um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, in fact, and I've been re-watching it a couple of times. And it's fascinating. It is absolutely amazing because the, once you shed, once you discard this idea that Ramesses is the Pharaoh of Exodus, you begin to free yourself to explore other avenues. And there is good reason to think that actually Ramesses, the, the, the word Ramesses was inserted into the new, in the, excuse me, the Old Testament text by scribes at a later time. And it's not the, it's not the first time that's happened in the Old Testament. There is evidence to suggest that there were other insertions to correct or to, not correct, but to, uh, contextualize, I guess is the right word. Um, to contextualize or to familiarize or acclimate the readers of the Old Testament text at the time that they were, that, that the Old Testament had been written down to the events that happened hundreds, if not thousands of years earlier. Here's what I'm, here's what I'm trying to get at. Um, imagine, if you will, uh, talking about, uh, oh, I don't know, Cairo. Um, everyone knows where Cairo is today, right? If I refer to Cairo as Fustat, no one would have a clue what the hell I'm talking about. No one would have any idea. What, what is Fustat? Fustat is the old name for Cairo. Why? Because there was a fort, you know, there, there is a fort actually, um, maintained in the hills around Cairo named Fustat. That was the ancient name for uh, Cairo at the time. But that name fell out of favor, I mean, after the Ottoman times. So if I were talking in 13th century AD terms, the use of Fustat might make sense. Uh, what's the ancient name for Baghdad? Um, it's not an uh, ancient name for Baghdad. Uh, the, Baghdad has actually gone by several names. Um, but Baghdad is... Uh, quite an old city, obviously, and Kufa, um, and, uh, no, it's not, it's not, uh, that one, it's, where is it, where is it, where is it, where is it, um, yeah, th there's an older name for Baghdad, which, you know, significantly predates, um, the modern name, right, this is not a, this is not a, uh, uh, a normal, like a, a new name, but I'm pretty sure it is Kufa, actually. Um, yeah. The, the old name for Baghdad was Kufa. If, if I were to talk to you, you know, today about events that happened 1400 years ago, when Islam first came into being, and I started talking about Kufa this and Kufa that, and you'd be like, what? Where's Kufa? We can't find it on a map. 
Well, yeah, you can't find it on a map because it wasn't called, uh, it isn't called Kufa today. It's called Baghdad. And if you went back in time and, or you, you tried to redact that name, Baghdad, onto ancient manuscripts to make them make sense to a modern audience, then the modern audience would say, oh, it was always called, you know, Baghdad back in the day. It wasn't. The same happens in Islamic history with uh, Medina. Medina was not known as Medina back then, not in the 7th century AD. Uh, it was called Yathrib. Yathrib as a city has existed since well before the 7th century. Um, I think, if, if, if I recall correctly from Dr. J. Smith's videos on YouTube, it, if you haven't subscribed to Fander Films, by the way, make sure you do because it's a phenomenal resource. Um, Dr. J has been on YouTube for years and years and he's got hundreds of videos up unpacking Islamic history. It's fantastic stuff, really worth watching. Um, but Yathrib has been around for a long time. But if, if I try to talk to you about Yathrib this and Yathrib that with reference to early Islamic history, you would have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. And rightly so, because you're used to using the name Medina. The same is true of places like, you know, try to, try to put yourself back in the shoes of people who were around when Hebrew actually had a written script and the Old Testament, the, you know, the, the, the Torah, the, the, when the Torah was finally being written down, put yourself in the place of those ancient Jews. I mean, imagine being a Jew in, I don't know, 800 BC, 600 BC, something like that. And you're trying to understand stuff that happened a thousand years before you lived. You wouldn't have a clue what the names were at the time. You wouldn't understand them. So you try to put modern names into those same names that are contemporary, that are contemporaneous with your understanding of the world. That seems to be what happened with Genesis and Exodus, where the name Ramesses, the city Ramesses, the name was inserted into the text. And we know this because if you look at Genesis chapter 47, the name Ramesses makes no sense being there, none whatsoever, because that is a chapter in which Joseph talks about, basically I think Joseph has just uh, finished um, burying his dad, um, Jacob, in, in, um, in Canaan. Uh, Genesis chapter 47... Uh, Genesis 47. Yeah, this is the bit where Jacob's family settles in Goshen and, uh, uh, where is it? Ramesses. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, I'm a bit off in terms of chronology, but this is where, um, Jacob's, you know, this is Genesis chapter 47. You'll find the first reference to Ramesses. That doesn't make sense. This is by any account several thousand, like, like a thousand years before Ramesses the king existed close to a thousand years, 800 years thereabouts. Um, doesn't make sense. It cannot be like, how does, how does a name from New Kingdom Egypt, which has a very different literary style, very different grammatical style, very different script? Uh, I think I could be wrong about that, but a very different writing style and speaking style of, um, of the ancient language of the region. How does that name make sense? 800 years before it ever appeared in a context that we understand today. It doesn't. That's the answer. If you watch this movie, Patterns of Evidence, Exodus, you'll see that if you move the timeline of Exodus back to the Middle Kingdom instead, 
and you look at the events described in Exodus of uh, a large migration of Semitic peoples into Egypt, a very rapid multiplication of those peoples in a very fertile and very prosperous part of Egypt under the protection of the king, you know, the, the pharaoh, then a significant, unprecedented concentration of power of, um, you know, pr uh, prior to the multiplication or around the, around the time of that multiplication, a massive expansion of centralized power where, you know, all the regional governors suddenly lose all their power and it all goes to the pharaoh in the center of government. And you look at then within a few generations, or not a few generations, but over a couple of hundred years, the rapid uh, destruction of that same Semitic population of, of a catastrophic fall off in life expectancies and in particularly male survival rates and a very sharp spike in the rate of infant mortality rates among the male population of the Semitic peoples. And you look at the, um, the, you know, the destruction of that settlement or the, the sudden abandonment of that settlement. It's all there. It all happens. And then you look back, uh, at, at um, uh, settlements such as Jericho, which is in Israel. I've been to Israel. I've, I didn't go to Jericho because Jericho obviously is part of Palestinian territory, but I've been to Israel. I've driven past the city of Jericho. That city has actually, it, it, there, there are a couple of places named Jericho. There's an old Jericho and a new Jericho. And this is one of the things that, you know, um, uh, secular scholars love to say, aha, that, that couldn't have happened. And, you know, Jesus couldn't have existed because in the New Testament, Jesus says, you know, he comes into Jericho from one direction, then he goes out of Jericho in a completely different direction. That doesn't make any sense. He goes from one Jericho to another. That doesn't make sense. There, there are two Jerichos. There's an old Jericho and there's a new Jericho. There's the modern Jericho that we understand today and there's the old Jericho that was destroyed. The old Jericho that was destroyed is the one where if you look through the excavation layers and you look before the New Kingdom era, the, you know, the, the, the time period that matches what we consider to be the New Kingdom era of today or the, of, of, of ancient Egypt, I mean, about 1200 BC, and you go back about three, 400 years in the past, the Middle Kingdom era, then you see a massive destruction of the city. Massive, on an epic scale. Exactly like it says in the book of Joshua. It's all there. Everything that you want to find is there. The destruction of Canaanite cities occupied by non-Jewish peoples, the rapid expansion, the rapid conquest, it's all there. And then you look back at historical evidence for figures like King David, uh, you'll find it now. We, we have the evidence. We have the King David Stalem, um, which describes, you know, the reign, or basically mentions King David very briefly, I think. Um, we have the, I think it's called the Meremta, the, the Merneptah or Merem, in the, in the movie it's spelled Merenta, but I think it's actually Merenepta Stela. Um, Merenepta, I think, was the son of Ramesses II. Let me fact check that real quickly. Uh, Merenepta. Uh, yeah, the pharaoh Merenepta was, uh, I think, yeah, he was the son of Ramesses II. I was right. 
he lived around what, 1213 to 1203 BC, so he reigned for 10 years, um, and probably was, what, I don't know, 30 or so when he died, so been around since the, the, the late 13th century, I would say, um, BC. So, anyway, uh, or was it the late 14th century? I forget. Um, the, the, the chronology doesn't, is, is a little tricky. I think it's the late 14th century. So, this guy, the son of Ramesses II, the man who supposedly, in the story of Exodus, according to modern understanding, Ramesses II loses, massively loses all of Egypt's grain supplies and and, and, and men and treasure and so on to the Israelites who comprehensively totally destroy his army, you know, with God's, well, God destroys them actually. Um, Merneptah in this stela references Israel. Israel's seed is spent. Uh, Israel's seed is like, it's gone. Now, does that refer to Israel's people or Israel's crops? It's a bit vague, but basically what he's saying is Israel has been defeated. How the hell does that make any sense if the modern chronology of Israel or of, of Exodus, which rules out Exodus as historical fact, how the hell does that statement make any sense? It doesn't. It can't. Israel cannot have been conquered you know, 10 years or so after uh, Egypt was so comprehensively and thoroughly destroyed does not work. Instead, what you see when you redact, or not redact, but push back the history to the Middle Kingdom is this catastrophic decline, very sudden catastrophic decline in Egyptian power. It's right there in the archaeological record. And this film explains it beautifully. And I, I, like I said, I can't recommend this highly enough. Go watch this movie. Go download it. You know, find a way to, to watch it. Well worth your time. It's, it's not, you know, um, it, it's, it's not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. It, it, it makes very plain, you know, there, there are things we can't explain yet in the historical timeline. There are events that don't line up with the Bible's narrative yet. But if you, go into things with an open mind and if you understand that there are some serious problems with Egyptian historical chronology right now, which even the most prominent Egyptologists will admit there are problems with reconstructing Israel's history, and even the most ardent secular historians will admit that there are gaps in the chronologies or the timelines of other ancient cultures around the region and those gaps are there only because everyone wants them to line up with Egypt's timeline. And the moment you eliminate those gaps, suddenly the biblical narrative and the historical fact line up perfectly. I mean, literally, absolutely perfectly. The moment you understand that, the moment you see it for yourself, you're like, wow, that's amazing. And that's exactly what the film shows you. So definitely cannot recommend that highly enough. And then you look back you know, that's Exodus. That reaffirms what Jesus was saying in the New Testament about the, the need for substitutionary sacrifice. What about Abraham? What about Moses? 
What about all these figures from the Old Testament? Did they exist? Well, this is where it gets interesting because for a long, long, long time, you know, about 150 years, maybe more, a lot of people argued that the first 10 chapters of Genesis were made up, that they didn't make sense, that characters like Abraham, Noah, uh, Ishmael, Isaac, and so on did not exist. And then we come across the Amarna, Nuzi, and Mari tablets, which talk about the cultures and the tribes and the cities and the politics of the region. See, uh, there's a bit of a technical wrinkle here, and I probably will get this wrong, so my apologies for this. Uh, please, you know, don't, uh, don't, don't quote me on this. Please go do your own research if, if you're interested in this stuff. But there is a fascinating point about um, Abraham in the historical record. The, the Bible basically talks about Abraham, you know, Abraham as he's known, Abraham before he becomes Abraham, um, in, you know, in uh, Genesis chapter 12, I think it was. Um, and he's basically called to move away from uh, Ur. Well, where is Ur? Where is, where is this place Ur? Uh, if you look at um, the, the Toledot of Terah, um, essentially uh, Noah, Noah's um, offspring, this is Genesis chapter 11. So, generations of Terah. Uh, Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot, and so on and so forth. And where is Abram located? Well, in Genesis chapter 11, verse 31, there's a line that says, And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran... They settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Okay, fine, whatever. What does what all that mean? Well, this is where it gets interesting. Again, remember what I said about how ancient scribes kind of did what we would do, which is insert names of things that they understood to be contemporary in order to make sense of what happened in the past you know, like hundreds or, or maybe even thousands of years before their time. Same thing. Ur of the Chaldeans is not the only Ur that existed. Where was Abraham? Well, this is where it gets really, really interesting. Um, the Amarna, Nuzi, and Mari tablets uh, basically talk about um, the same cultures, the same Semitic and other cultures that Abraham would have been around at the time. And it's very similar to what the Bible records. Abraham is no longer this mystical figure who, you know, probably was made up. We now know that the cultures described in the Bible are the ones that match with the tablets now discovered in these remote regions. Uh, Mari Nuzi tablets. 
Why are these such a big deal? Well, the Amarna letters, the you know the various other tablets and stuff. Um, what what do they what do they tell us? Well, they they tell us some astonishing things about the fact that these people, these biblical figures, actually existed, and they describe events that date back. You know, they describe uh, cultural practices that you can find in, in earlier chapters of Genesis. Uh, the, the, the Nuzi tablets, for instance, they talk about uh, practices similar to those that you find in Genesis, such as adoption for childless couples, Genesis chapter 15. Um, you can find evidence that ties back to earlier parts of Genesis and describes events from Genesis. This cannot be coincidental. I mean, it's just not possible. Now, we have actual evidence from the time that indicates that someone named or somebody like Abraham, somebody very like Abraham, actually emigrated from a place called Ur, which is not the only Ur at the time. There were a number of, well, there were a couple of different ones, um, that allowed, that allows the, the biblical narrative to stand true. So now what does that tell us? Well, tells us that we can trust the Bible. Ultimately, that's what it tells us. It tells us that there is a continuity between what is described in the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, the book of Joshua, the book, the books of the histories of Israel and Judah, um, all the way through to the New Testament. There is one continuous line of transmission from the past to the present. Now, does this resolve all questions? Obviously not. Obviously, it cannot resolve all questions. There are still a number of open questions about uh, the first 10 chapters of Genesis, such as the flood account, such as the creation account. And yet, as I've gone over in the past, and as you can explore for yourself, um, there is no real conflict between science and the Bible in the first three chapters of Genesis. There's no conflict between them. Genesis describes 26 separate scientific events, scientific phenomena. They all happen in, in the right order, at the right time, in the right place. Do they happen exactly as science describes? No, maybe not. But they're happening, the, 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 the congruence between what the Bible says and what scientific evidence tells us happened in the early stages of the universe is so close in terms of um, sequence of events, if not exact descriptions, that it cannot be coincidental. It's the only book, the only one, that describes those events in exactly the right order, at exactly the right time, or, okay, I'll take that back, not exactly the right time, but it's certainly in exactly the right order, because there's no sense of, well, there's a lot of debate about whether the days described in Genesis chapter 1 are true 24-hour days, or there are ages. A lot of the world's leading Hebraists would argue you cannot impose that foreign meaning of ages onto the days described in the Hebrew. You can't do that. That's introducing a foreign concept onto the text. Well, maybe. I don't, I don't speak Hebrew. I don't know. All I can tell you is that there is a remarkable congruence of events in Genesis. So if we can trust Genesis, and we can trust Exodus, 
and we can trust the, the, the books that follow. And we can be sure that King David actually existed because he does. I mean, he did. That's made very clear by the King David statement. And if we can be sure that the historical Jesus matches the biblical accounts of Jesus very well, which the latest evidence makes clear that he did, you know, the, the, the practices of um, excruciation and the secondary sources that we have, or actually the contemporary sources, I should say, um, from the time, Josephus and Tacitus in particular, you know, skeptical accounts as well as sympathetic accounts, all support the existence of a messianic prophet that matches very closely with Jesus' account. And we have evidence of massive natural disasters and phenomena occurring around the world, not just in Canaan, not just in Israel at the day on the day of Jesus' death. Then we have everything that we need to argue that Jesus existed, that he was real, that he was and is the Son of God, that he came down to die for us, that he died on the cross and rose again on the third day. And honestly, that's what we need. That's all we need. That's everything we need. I want to leave off, uh, because I've only got a few minutes left, a couple minutes left, with my favorite passage from the Bible. Um, this is the one that matters the most to me personally. This is Genesis, uh, this is, uh, John chapter 20. Um, and it's about those who doubt. And I have enormous sympathy for people who doubt. Uh, some of the people who read my site and who listen to my podcast are themselves struggling with Christianity. They're, they're struggling to come to terms with what Christianity says. To them, I want you to read this one set of verses. John chapter 20, starting verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I want you to take that away with you if you're struggling with anything that I've said. Christianity is not about blind faith. It never was and it never will be. It's about questioning and asking and seeking answers. And if you seek hard enough, you will find those answers. And you will find that they ultimately always lead back to Jesus Christ. So make that your priority. Seek out these answers. Ask the questions. Look at the texts. And examine them as closely as you want. And time and again, you're going to find them leading back to the man who is God, risen in glory. That's it. That's all I've got time for. 
This is, or has been, it's been an absolute pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. This has been Didactic Mind, episode 74, Risen in Glory. And I am Didact, signing off.